Nathaniel, give us your best Boston accent. Uh, my name is Nathaniel Rakich, and uh, today we launched the 538 redistricting tracker, and uh, we hope you'll check it out. That was so subtle. Well, you, you didn't give me much to work with. What about even Nathaniel? Like Nathaniel. That's a bit exaggerated, Galen. 538, trying to connect with our listeners and any accent. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. President Biden has so far had the most stable presidential approval rating in polling history. He still holds that title, but in recent weeks, his approval rating has begun to decline noticeably, almost three points since late July. Today, we're going to take a look at why that might be happening. We're also going to discuss the results of two primary elections in Ohio last week that tested the appeal of an anti-establishment message in both parties. The TLDR version is that Democratic primary voters rejected it and Republican primary voters embraced it. And we also have some very exciting news at the website. Today, we launched our redistricting tracker for the process that's going to play out over the next six months or so. We'll track every map drawing process and gerrymandering we see in every state across the country. So we're going to talk about what to watch for as the redistricting process gets underway. And here with me to do all of that, our editor-in-chief, Nate Silver. Hey, Nate. Hey, everybody. Also with us is politics editor, Sarah Frostenson. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Galen. And senior elections analyst, Nathaniel Rakich. Hey, Nathaniel. Hey, Galen. It's wicked good to be here. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> there we go. You got it. You nailed it. Oh, wow. <laughs> all right. That is it. And I will not be doing the entire podcast in a Boston accent, but I wanted to satisfy Galen. Sometime you'll have to do the entire podcast, but I didn't give you any warning this week, so we'll let it slide for today. But uh, Nate, welcome back. How was Italy? Pretty awesome. Lots of uh, hanging out, at eating food and going to the beach. I saw, who's that Trump guy I texted you about? George Papadopoulos. George Papadopoulos. How was George Papadopoulos? Good. He stood there for quite a while in the middle of the town square in Capri and uh, ordered a few alcoholic beverages. Did you introduce yourself? No, I would not do that. You would have, though, if you were there. <laughs> well, of course, I mean, of course. <laughs> Hi, I'm Galen Drew. Huge fan. I'm impressed that you recognized him. Yeah, how did you recognize him? Yeah. Did you recognize him? Did Robbie recognize him? Robbie did, yeah. But, like, I kind of surreptitiously, like, took a photo, right? I looked like just some tourist taking a photo of the town square. I think I have the photo. Did you send me a photo? Yeah. Maybe it didn't go through. No, I think it, let me see. It was uh, not as fun as being on this podcast, though. <laughs> I mean, like, is there any comparison? So let's talk about how President Biden is doing in the public's eyes. His disapproval rating has ticked up steadily throughout his presidency so far. So according to our averages, it's ticked up from around 35% to about 43% today. His approval rating, as I mentioned, has been quite steady, but it has taken a dip recently. He's now at 50% approval after starting around 54%. So what the public thinks of the president matters on its own, but for those thinking about the 2022 midterms, it's also a key indicator of how the parties might perform. In fact, the chair of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee told a group of House members recently that if the elections were held today, Democrats would lose their majority. All right, so let's dig into these numbers and the reasons behind them. Why is Biden's approval rating declining? Because of the Delta variant? Period, done. Should we, should we move on from this segment? I mean, that's certainly a plausible hypothesis, but I also feel yeah. like it could be that 
because it's not early days of Biden's presidency anymore. And this is just what approval ratings do. They kind of revert to the mean or the extent to the, I mean, Biden barely had a honeymoon, if, if, you, if you want to call it that. I mean, he had a low disapproval rating early on and that's gradually come upward. But to the extent he had a honeymoon, that period does seem to be ending. Yeah, we actually wrote an article that went out July 22nd on the six month mark for Biden's approval rating. And at that point, it hadn't dipped. But that was also the week where the Delta variant really did catch on in terms of concern, cases going up and just widespread concern here in the U.S. So I think Nate's answer is a little flip, but it does seem very tied to the risk that the variant poses. Because the other thing is, there are issues where Biden gets lower marks. We know immigration and crime, for instance, are two really big issues where he often doesn't perform well. But that's been true since the outset of his presidency. So that's not a new factor here in the way that COVID and his approval there is. And we've seen that in polls as well. The most recent Quinnipiac poll, for instance, found his net job approval rating on handling COVID had dropped 22 points since May. So it does seem as if there is a pretty clear relationship to the pandemic and Biden's handling of it. Now, I think what's hard there is the pandemic is not just a issue of people being concerned of infection or getting sick. There are economic concerns there as well, right? And that can be a little hard to disentangle. Our COVID Biden approval tracker shows him falling from 63% approval on COVID to 56. So on the one hand, it's still an above average issue for him, but it has dropped and that drop coincides with the drop in his overall approval rating coincides with the arrival of the Delta variant. As Sarah was getting at too, it's a tricky issue because there often aren't correct answers to kind of how you implement public policy. Things like vaccine mandates are actually fairly popular. However, Biden doesn't seem to think it's it's his business to tell private businesses what to do. So apart from federal government employees and the military, he doesn't have direct control over that. There are people that are done with COVID and want no masks or anything anymore. There are people that think we should shut schools down again on the other side of this. So it's kind of like whatever answer you pick, you're not going to make everybody happy. I wanted to ask that question specifically. And Nathaniel, if you want to rebut this argument and say that it's not based on the Delta variant, I'm happy to hear that. But for those, you know, Sarah and Nate who think it is, is it just because of the Delta variant period, or is it because the Biden administration has had difficulty handling it? Yeah, I mean, I certainly don't mean to rebut the idea that it, it could be the Delta variant. I think obviously it's impossible to say for sure what the reason is. But my logic is just that you look at his disapproval rating in the 538 tracker, and that has steadily been going upward ever since he was inaugurated. And you look at the approval rating, that was pretty steady for the first few months. But really since I would say the beginning of June is when the current decline started. And that does seem to predate Delta. So Delta could be factoring into it, but I wouldn't be surprised if this would be happening even in a world without the Delta variant, basically is what I'm saying. So keep in mind, like in July, early July, we were talking about a Gallup poll that found many Americans considered themselves to be thriving. Whereas now when you look at how Americans feel about the economy, there is more economic pessimism than there was in April. So that does seem distinctly tied to the Delta variant and rising concerns there. I think the biggest thing that cuts against that is data from Morning Consult that shows that since April, independents have been souring on Biden's job approval. And so that predates here the Delta variant in July and August and does maybe suggest that there are longer standing issues that could be playing into this. That said, though, in terms of 
if you want to call it a sudden drop that we've seen. And I I don't know that that's the right way to characterize it, because I think as we'll talk about later, we've seen with starting with Obama, president's approval ratings just move within such a narrow band. And Biden's definitely following that trend right now. But it does seem as if Delta variants exacerbating it. At least, though, among independents, there could be indicators that there is more at play here than just what we're seeing with the variant. I think, though, we're going to need a little bit more time to see how that plays out or readjusts. Nate, I'm curious, you said up front that it's the Delta variant. Is it the Delta variant an inevitable way in that people are dissatisfied because cases are on the rise and they're going to disapprove of the person in charge as a result? Or are there specific grievances with the way that the Biden administration is handling things? My view is that there is, I mean, this is kind of not a consensus view. I think governments maybe have less to do with the spread of the pandemic than most people do. I mean, if you look around the world, even the countries that handled it well in the first phase, like Australia, are having a lot of problems now. And so that's kind of more philosophical point about COVID. But I do think that in the early days of COVID, people gave politicians a break a little bit. In the very early days, Trump's approval actually improved when we were first hit with the first wave last spring of COVID. And people were pretty patient, whichever approach you took. But it is kind of a no-win situation because you are choosing between lots of really nasty things. It's horrible that 600,000 people have died in the country. It's also horrible that like all of our school children basically went a year without being in the classroom. And these are really horrible decisions to make. And it's kind of a no-win situation. I mean, it's also the fact that, like, when cases are rising, it's just very hard for people to, like, focus on other things. You know what I mean? When they're falling, people can try to put things more in perspective or whatnot. But you see kind of the red arrows pointed upward or whatever. People tend to react very emotionally and I think feel like everything is spinning out of control. I think the media coverage on COVID also tends to focus on sometimes the most frightening (laughs) interpretation of events and that isn't helping Biden either. I know the White House has gotten snippy with like the New York Times and how they reported some stories about the Delta variant. And so I think it's a tough issue to handle. Yeah, I also think it's something too, at least in the polls where we're asking Americans, like, what do you think about the current state of economy? Do you think it's going to get better or worse? I think you're seeing a lot more like wild swings there than you normally would, which is just kind of a reflection of the unpredictability of COVID. In April of this year, it did seem like a different trajectory, at least in regard to variants like vaccination rates were high. Parts of the country were really reopening. And now there's more uncertainty there. And I think that's why you see like a Gallup poll from earlier in July. Most Americans say they're thriving versus like there was a poll from CNBC that was released earlier this month. And it found that 51% of Americans think the economy is going to get worse. Like, it's not that either poll refutes the other. I think it just shows how unpredictable the pandemic is right now. And so it makes it hard, I think, to really understand where this is going next and how Americans really think about the economy because it's constantly changing. I think we've heard some criticism from Republicans in particular about the CDC's advice in terms of masking. We've talked about this on the podcast before, just that originally it was if you get vaccinated, you can take your mask off indoors. Now they're saying that vaccinated people should wear masks in areas where cases are going up. Of course, the Biden administration doesn't necessarily have control over what messaging the CDC is putting out in the same way the Trump administration didn't necessarily have control over whatever Anthony Fauci was saying when Trump was in office. Is that whiplash part of this? Is the government making decisions and framing things in a way that's making people unhappy? Or is it that people are just unhappy with the variant? 
I think the CDC has made lots of mistakes. I'm not sure their messaging is necessarily the biggest mistake <laughs> right now. You know, when they kind of removed the mask mandate, it was based on one set of circumstances, and now you have a different set of circumstances. And I think people probably overrate consistency when the data is changing. But no, I'm sure the fact that people felt like we were kind of past this and now we aren't, even though if you had talked to scientists, I think, well, it would depend on who you talk to, right? I think a lot of them would have said, well, COVID was going to be endemic. There are always going to be waves triggered by different variants or waning immunity, and you'll probably need booster shots. And then, you know, and eventually just kind of have to live with it. I think there's been a lot of denial in the policy community about that <laughs> endemic nature of COVID. Policy, do you mean like political policy? Political policy or even personal advice. People are saying, how should you react to the Delta variant if you're vaccinated? I think people are are not willing to say that, hey, the hard truth is this thing is going to be around for many years. If you're vaccinated, then it's pretty low risk for severe outcomes. So you have to go back to living your life and you'll probably need a booster shot before too much longer. And if you're not vaccinated, then you're f***ed. So get vaccinated. I mean, people are like not quite that blunt about it, even if you kind of follow what the smartest experts say, it's some, I'm sure, more diplomatic version of that, that most of them expect it to be an endemic disease. All right. Well, perhaps we've made people's satisfaction with the trajectory of the country economy and COVID even more pessimistic now. <laughs> but no, it's fair and important to be frank in, in this context. It seems as if the goalposts have changed, as Nate was getting at, where it's like, I'm vaccinated and therefore I'll never get sick again, when that really was never the intention, right? The idea was that you don't end up on a ventilator in the hospital. But I think then because you're now seeing this rise in cases and because there have been small breakthrough cases for people who've been vaccinated, that feeds into concern and hysteria around it. And I do think makes it difficult then to manage reopening the country because there is a risk of getting sick. It was never meant to be that COVID was eradicated. But I think it was just, there was always so much uncertainty around, well, what does herd immunity look like? Will these vaccinations stop transmission of the disease? And because it's still an evolving story and we don't know how a lot of this plays out, I think that feeds into the uncertainty and concern that people have regarding the pandemic. And then when you have something like the Delta variant and it seems like some cities are taking you no know, steps back around mandates on masks, I think it just feeds into when will this be over? And that's a really hard thing, I think, even if the government doesn't have much power to control that, to at least message around what that should be. And I think that's what we're seeing reflected in the polls now. We've also said here that independents were souring on Biden before the Delta variant ever took off. Nathaniel, why do you think that might be? I'm kind of a fatalist or someone who thinks that these overarching trends are really what matters. But I, again, I think that during the early days of somebody's presidency, independence in particular might be more likely to say they approve of the president and then move away from him over the course of his first couple of years, of course, culminating in the typical midterm shellacking. In addition, people who say they disapprove of the president or that number might be artificially low initially because not just independents, but also members of the opposite party maybe feel like they have to give the president the benefit of the doubt, but then they don't because partisanship rules everything. And then that number comes up. So I think the smart bet is that by 2022, independents are not going to approve of the Democratic Party and they're going to kind of swing back to Republicans. And this may be the beginning of that, or it could be something else as we've been discussing. 
That morning consult poll did seem to suggest that it was largely economic concerns that were driving a lot of the leeching away of support from Biden among independents. And I do think that could be a potential weak point here for Biden in relation to COVID, but then just like more broadly as well. The Biden administration and other Democrats have been touting polling that show the bipartisan infrastructure bill and the go-it-alone $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation bill to be popular. I think that's complicated. These packages have so much stuff in them that depending on how you message around them, you could probably change people's minds pretty dramatically on whatever is included in this bill once it passes in particular. But we've asked this question in the past, and I'll ask it again right now at an inflection point for where approval goes next. Does passing popular legislation change the calculus here? So I thought our colleague, Perry Bacon, who's now at the Washington Post, had a really interesting piece earlier this year about the COVID-19 stimulus bill, where he kind of argued that, look, Republicans have voted against this both in the House and Senate, but here's why it might not actually hurt them in the 2022 midterms. And I thought one of his sharpest points in that piece had been that electoral politics and policy are just increasingly disconnected. You know, for instance, One thing we have seen consistently is that Biden's approval rating on his handling of the pandemic is higher than his overall approval rating. So that means there is some level of disconnect between, I think he's handling the pandemic well, but I still don't think he's doing a good job as president. And so, you know, when Pew Research had found, for instance, that among lower income Republicans, the stimulus bill was really popular, you know, that seemed as if a strong selling point for Democrats, maybe even potential to win over lower income voters. But will that actually translate to electoral success come 2022? I I think that's a muddy connection that's not really clear and is going to have a lot more to do with what economic conditions look like for voters as we move into 2022. And we'll have less to do with like what policies were passed. Passing unpopular policies can hurt you or even attempting them sometimes can hurt you, as we saw with Democrats in health care under Obama and then actually Republicans also in health care failing to repeal Obamacare was still unpopular because they kind of tried But yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think people tend to notice the impact on their bottom lines more. You know, maybe if you have infrastructure package, then you see some billboards saying, you know, this is paid for by the American whichever act. And maybe that helps a little bit at the margin. But it's probably more to do with what things impact people's daily lives, which again, kind of why I go back to COVID, because the effect on your daily life is kind of unavoidable. Even if you're vaccinated and you're trying to live your life as normal, then you still, I'm sure, have lots of negative news reports, lots of friends and family members who may be taking a different tact or may not be vaccinated. And so it just kind of adds to stress and anxiety. I mentioned that the chair of the DCCC, Sean Patrick Maloney, according to political reporting, told a group of House Democrats recently that if the midterms were held today, they would lose their majority. And he kind of framed it as like, this is a messaging challenge, not necessarily a policy challenge because our policies are popular. And that maybe is in line with what you just said, Sarah, which is that maybe it doesn't matter if the policies are popular, if the brand is bad or something. Do you think that Sean Patrick Maloney is correct? Well, if the midterms were held today, there would not be districts to run in. So (laughs) nobody would win the House. We will get to that very soon. Um, But it's an important point because redistricting will be incredibly important in who wins the House. And you could very well rerun the 2020 election exactly as it happened under new districts and Republicans would win the House. So I do kind of think that is the most important factor. If we had the midterms right now under the current districts, I don't really know. You know, I think it would certainly be a toss up or, you know, maybe not 
literally a toss-up, but either party would clearly have a good shot at winning. If you look at some recent generic ballot polls, Democrats have tended to lead by the low single digits, which of course is exactly what happened in 2020, and they ended up with a very narrow majority. But of course, the polls were better for Democrats before, and they ended up underestimating Republicans. So it's certainly a plausible outcome. But also, I never want to put too much stock in somebody being like, oh yeah, our polling says this. Oh no, you can't see who conducted it, when it was conducted, what the sample was, etc. Clearly, Biden's approval rating is not headed in the right direction for Democrats, right? Like, I'm not going to dispute that. But I do think one thing we're losing sight of, and this was Amy Walter had written for the Political Report, you know, a piece kind of unpacking Biden's approval rating. And in one of her interviews with Hart's Research, who helped conduct the CNBC survey, you know, they were saying that the biggest drop in economic concern from April and July came from Democrats. And as we know, Biden's approval rating is more baked in with Democrats incredibly loyal. So if it's Democrats who are most concerned right now about COVID in some ways, once the Delta variant is no longer as much of a threat, that could bounce back for Biden. The other thing I've seen is while Democrats were not successful in their efforts to pass, you know, a $15 minimum wage, a lot of companies are now paying their workers $15 because that's what the market demands. So there is a way in which we don't really know in what direction the economy is headed. And so it could be that right now things look really bad and that's why voters are souring on Biden. But that could be a short-lived bump in the road because his approval rating too, it's dropped what, like three points, but it's still within like a five-point margin. It's nowhere near what Trump's would have been looking at, you know, in 2017 and the lead up to the midterm. So I think we need to be careful in terms of how much we're really reading into this being bad news for Democrats at this point. One thing to add too is keep in mind all these generic ballot polls that we're looking at are usually polls of registered voters or all adults. And of course, what you really want to know was what the actual electorate likely voters will do. It's certainly too early to, I think, be attempting a likely voter model because most people are not thinking about the election at all. Typically, that favors the out party, meaning not the president's party. So if anything, if Democrats are up three or four points among registered voters, maybe they're only up one point or two points among likely voters. With that said, the Trump coalition is different. It consists of a lot of people that may not traditionally have voted in big numbers in midterm elections. The Democrats will have a lot of messaging directed to their base, potentially. So we'll see. I mean, the one place where that likely voter thing seems to matter a lot is in California. I don't know if you guys talked about that when I was out, but... Sure did. In those polls, the likely voter polls show the recall as being a much more live enterprise than the registered voter polls. And that election's happening when? Soon. So that's an interesting bellwether. September. No, wait, August. September 14th? Is that when it is? Yeah. September 14th. Okay, well, let's leave things there for now. I'm sure this is not the last of discussions like this. And let's move on to last week's primaries in Ohio. But first, today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. 
Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries, backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, Ohio held primaries for special elections in two congressional districts, which we discussed on last week's podcast. The 11th is an overwhelmingly Democratic district, and the 15th is overwhelmingly Republican. In the 11th district, local politician Chantel Brown defeated well-known progressive Nina Turner by about six points. Brown was, of course, favored by the establishment, and Turner was favored by the left flank of the party. In Ohio's 15th district, Mike Carey beat Jeff Luray by about 24 points. Kerry was a relatively unknown coal lobbyist who received Trump's endorsement. Luray is a pretty well-known local politician and was supported by the outgoing representative. Of course, he was still defeated, though. So I'm curious, after it was all said and done, what are your takeaways from these two contests? So we don't want to make too much out of any one, or in this case, two primaries or special elections or anything like that. We've said that multiple times. In the 11th district, the Democratic primary, it certainly looks like kind of the establishment cavalry came to the rescue of Chantel Brown and was able to defeat Nina Turner, who had a pretty substantial lead based on both sides' internal polling early in the race. But there was a lot of outside spending on behalf of Brown, and this is kind of in its bones a more establishment-friendly district. It was Hillary Clinton's best district in the 2016 presidential primary, best district in Ohio, rather. And I believe that was also true of Biden in 2020, although by that point, the race was no longer competitive as Bernie Sanders had dropped out. And so I think that reminder and the nationalization of the race with figures such as Hillary Clinton and Jim Clyburn endorsing Chantel Brown really helped her overcome in that case. Is it the nationalization of the race why this is maybe so interesting? as an indicator of like where the Democratic Party is headed. Yes, but it's also, you have to remember the district's natural inclination, first of all. I think if this had been a district that was really good for Bernie Sanders, if the race had been nationalized, then that might have been good for Nina Turner, for instance. But also, again, not reading too much into any one special election. It's certainly, it's a loss that hurts for progressives. You know, this was a really a golden opportunity for them to add somebody to their caucus. Nina Turner having a voice in Congress would have been significant because she is a major national player on the left. But that said, you have to look at the overall trend in primaries, Democratic primaries, which show that the establishment does tend to win these head-to-head races with progressives. Myself and Meredith Conroy have done a series of articles both in 2018 and 2020 looking at this, but also the progressives do score upset wins once in a while. And certainly I don't think the fact that progressives didn't win this race means that they'll never win another Democratic primary again. I fully expect they will win a couple more seats in the 2022 regularly scheduled primaries as well. 
Nathaniel's right that we don't want to read too much into it, but it's clearly a setback, at least electorally, for the progressive movement within the Democratic Party. And that's what I think is so interesting, because in terms of issues, and even thinking about Biden's presidency, like the left wing of the Democratic Party has really pushed him on a number of issues, withdrawing troops from Afghanistan, making sure that the stimulus package had far-reaching economic benefits. We're seeing this now in the infrastructure bill that they're going to pass through the reconciliation process in the sense of healthcare, home workers being thought of, you know, as human infrastructure. There's a lot of ways in which I think that influence, though, is mismatched in terms to the electoral success that we've seen for progressives at the ballot box. And I mean, the fact, too, that going into the race, that the progressive movement was already starting to rebrand a little bit as a pragmatic progressive effort, I think is telling in terms of whether real or not the constraints that progressives are feeling in this electoral environment leading up to 2022. You know, there's a a lot that's been made about defund the police is not a popular slogan. Clyburn, who got involved in this race, has been very vocal against that, backed Brown. And I think because early internal polls had suggested that Turner was in the lead, those we've said, you know, particularly with House races, particularly with special elections, polls are really hard to understand what the dynamics actually look like. But this was a race that had heavy amounts of money on both sides in terms of spending. It was the progressives like race to win in some ways. The fact that they didn't, it is a setback for the progressive movement, at least in terms of like having representation in Congress. Yeah, in 2016 in this district, Clinton beat Sanders by better than two to one. She got almost 70% of the vote. So in some ways, nationalizing the race and turning it into a referendum on like Clinton versus Bernie probably didn't help Nina Turner. I also think you saw in this race, not the new kind of progressive branding, but some of the old personality-driven conflicts, right? I mean, there were frankly a lot of pretty crazy theories circulated about people in Turner's orbit and Turner herself about money that had flooded in from X and Y, and I don't want to get into specifics, but some of those were framed in ways that were a little problematic, I think. And the people cheering most loudly for Turner were, again, some of the more abrasive elements within (laughs) the Sanders coalition. And ironically, I think it didn't serve their purposes. Of course, they want to, like, tout their own importance, but, like, it doesn't serve their purposes to, like, relitigate 2016. I mean, Bernie lost in 2016, and he lost in 2020. Yeah, well, in fairness to Turner, she did run a very anodyne campaign, especially early on. She aired some very wholesome ads about how she was a grandmother and was just looking out for her grandchildren's well-being and things like that. And she actually really ran more on her relationships with local politicians. She had been a rising star in the Ohio Democratic Party before she became this national progressive figure. But I do think it was smartly the establishment that came in and nationalized the race when Jim Clyburn aired ads, when a lot of these super PACs came in with their negative ads against Turner, highlighting the things she had said against Clinton and against Biden. So I think that's what doomed Turner. Yeah, I mean, I think that was kind of too what made her such an interesting candidate for progressives was because she did have deep legislative roots in the state. And as Nathaniel was saying, did actually run a very bread and butter campaign in terms of trying to distance herself from the national politics. But I think when you make enemies within the party, and particularly for Democrats, you know, more so than Republicans, there's a strong element of party loyalty, particularly in a primary setting. And so that cuts against a progressive candidate, despite having strong roots in the state like Turner. Yeah, I think we don't want to overly simplify a narrative, but these two primaries on the same day did seem to be reflective of something that exists within the two parties, which is that 
Democrats like the Democratic Party and the Democratic Party's establishment more than Republicans do. And we saw that play out in 2016 and 2020. And now the question is, where does it go from here? And at the same time that Democrats, after Nina Turner polled quite well in the district, turned on her because they learned more and more about her relationship with the establishment of the party. At the same time that was happening, Trump was helping this outsider-positioned candidate who was a coal lobbyist, not particularly well-known, defeat candidates backed by well-known local politicians. So I think there is something here that speaks to a dynamic that is playing out within the two parties. Yeah, I mean, I think the Sanders people sometimes misdiagnosed the appetite for anti-democratic capital D messaging, as opposed to kind of actual progressive messaging, which in some cases is fairly popular, especially among Democrats. But the kind of anti-establishment streak, I think, on the one hand, it kind of helped burn into second place, but second place is not first place. And like, there's not like a majority in the same way there was for a Trumpian critique of the, of the GOP. And I think what you saw of it, too, a lot of it in 2016 was probably anti-Hillary Clinton more than anti-establishment generally, because Biden won back states that she had lost to Sanders because I think an anti-Hillary vote. Right. And I think, you know, as you were getting at Galen, what we then saw in the other race with Mike Carey, the Trump endorsed candidate, winning that field quite heavily is kind of a rebuke then, at least among Republican voters when it comes to the establishment. That said, though, you know, you look at the Texas sixth race and Susan Wright and Jake Elsey were essentially interchangeable candidates. You know, their campaign websites listed the same top three issues. What it really came down to was Trump's endorsement. Right. And I think to the extent that there is still more of a Cheney-esque wing within the Republican Party. I think there are big differences between LZ and Cheney, but he would fit more into that mold. And of course, he won ultimately in Texas as sex. You're right. He won, didn't have Trump's backing. So I think it's like in the same way that we're diagnosing that at least among the Democratic Party, there's a danger in terms of how they back progressives relative to the establishment. I think we see more of an appetite among the GOP for that, but it's not a perfect narrative either is what I'm getting at. Like Kerry won this race in Ohio handily, but right, Trump's backed candidate in Texas didn't win. So I think it's mixed signals on both sides. However, among Republicans, I think you see a stronger appetite for the true outsider candidate than you often do among Democrats. Right. So we shouldn't take this idea or narrative as infallible, but it seems to be a trend. And I'm curious, Nathaniel, I think you have done the counting and compiling of how powerful Trump's endorsement is. What have you found? Yeah. So again, Meredith Conroy and I have written this a couple years running on the site, and we found that Trump's endorsement is the most valuable prize in Republican primaries. And I think that this Ohio 15 primary just continued that trend. I think there was a lot of, frankly, wishful thinking among a lot of anti-Trumpers going into this race that, oh, maybe the Trump-endorsed candidate would lose this time as well, and that would make two losses in a row for Trump, and and those would be two high-profile losses in in his immediate post-presidency period, and maybe that means that he's loosening his grip on the GOP, and that just didn't come about. And in fact, I think arguably this was a particularly strong win for Trump in the Ohio 15th 
because Mike Carey was not a particularly well-known politician beforehand. He was running against several state legislators. And I think this is an example where Trump's endorsement probably did give him quite a few extra brownie points, um, whereas a lot of Trump's endorsement in the past and the reason he's able to brag of his 98-99% win rate is that he often endorses incumbents, people without serious challenges. But this is a race where probably without his endorsement, I don't really see the case for why Mike Carey would have won. It was interesting, though, at least Mike Carey still won handily, but other Republicans, I'm thinking Senator Rand Paul, I'm thinking Mark Meadows' wife, had stepped in to endorse other candidates. And again, you know, they did it in a way that was kind of respectful to Trump, not really questioning his endorsement or why he was backing Kerry. But it does suggest that there is at least a little bit of variation in terms of attitudes among Republicans. We definitely, you know, again, in the Texas 6th, saw that the Trump-backed candidate didn't win. So I think it's it'll be interesting, and I'm excited that we're tracking it here moving into the 2022 midterms. But there are more variations, I think, than we realize. All right. Well, speaking of things that we're tracking, let's talk about redistricting. As I mentioned, today we are launching what we're calling our redistricting tracker. So after the census comes out every 10 years, states redraw their congressional and state legislative maps for the next 10 years. I'm sure lots of listeners are familiar with this. We've talked about it a lot on this podcast. In fact, we did an entire series on it back in 2017 and 2018. Anyway, this is obviously a high stakes process since the way that maps are drawn can have a big impact on what a state's representation looks like. So we're gonna be tracking every state in the country as lawmakers and independent commissions draw new maps. And you'll be able to see the partisan lean, demographics and competitiveness of each district. And this is a big site-wide project, so we hope everyone will go check it out at 538.com. And in fact, bookmark it so that you can kind of track your own state or states that you're interested in throughout this entire process. With that said, Nathaniel, you have played a big role in getting this tracker out on the site. What are we hoping that people take away from this project? Yeah, so first I want to shout out Ryan Best and Aaron Bykoff, who worked really hard to design and develop the tracker. Um, it looks awesome, so I highly recommend that people check it out. But I think what we are looking to kind of communicate to readers is the degree to which the lines that are being drawn really can influence and, and maybe be even the biggest influence on the outcome of an election. So if people go to the main page, for instance, we have a map of the United States that's going to fill in with all the districts as they're drawn, and it's going to be shaded by their 538 partisan lean. But then below the map, you also see it's called a waffle chart, where basically you can see how how many Republican-leaning districts there are, how many Democratic-leaning districts there are, and where they meet in the middle. And you can see that under the old maps, Republican-leaning districts alone came close to constituting a majority of the House. And you'll be able to compare as the new maps fill in whether Republicans gain more Republican-leaning seats or not. That would be my guess, given that they control a plurality of redistricting districts, I guess. And then you can also click through to each individual state, and we give you lots of information like what party controls redistricting in that state, speaking of which, and also the latest news about this is when a new map is expected to be released or they've released a new map. And then we're going to be tracking as many proposed maps as possible, and you should be able to click through to that so people can do that right now with Colorado's proposed map, which is the only one that's been proposed so far. So, of course, the data that states are going to use to redraw their maps is coming out this 
Thursday. So this is just in time. While if people check it out right now, they're going to see that we're still waiting for a lot of proposed maps. That information is going to start coming out relatively quickly as states get this data and get underway in drawing maps. What are we most interested here in terms of what the unknowns are as we head into this process? I think as Nathaniel was getting at, Republicans have the power to redraw 187 congressional districts versus Democrats 75. And yes, there are 167 where it's no party enjoys control either because of independent commissions or because there's split partisan control in that state. But the stakes here are huge, particularly considering the narrow majority Democrats currently have in Congress. It's an eight-seat majority. And you know, earlier this year there was a study from researchers that suggested that just based on the maps in Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, and Texas, Republicans, where they have control in those states, could draw enough seats to give them an edge in the 2022 elections. And so there's a lot of emphasis going into the midterms and what the maps might look like. But remember, redistricting, it's a decade-long process in the sense of the repercussions it has. We saw that in the 2010s. We'll see that here in the 2020s. And so I think it's both the 2022 midterm question, but then also thinking about long-term changes within the U.S. and what that will mean for elections. I'm curious, we have talked about this a lot over the years. In 2010, Republicans were in a similar situation, maybe in fact an even better situation in terms of controlling state governments and being able to draw the maps as they saw fit. Given that the current maps were drawn under that current environment, do we really expect that through redistricting alone, Republicans will be able to pick up that many more congressional districts? What kind of range are we talking about here? Because we didn't have any census data until recently, I think people have been holding off on trying to make too many specific predictions. Sean Trendy at Real Clear Politics did make an attempt several months ago and I think wound up projecting a net GOP gain of maybe five or six seats. I mean, it is correct that Republicans controlled the process in as many or more places last time around. There is still some benefit to controlling it again because these districts like in Texas that got away from the GOP, now you can make some of those safer, at least maybe not by the end of the decade, but for the first couple of elections potentially. There's questions about whether these nonpartisan commissions are kind of implicitly tending to endorse a Democratic view of redistricting or not, right? So what category you put them in is the question. No, like, I mean, I think Democrats have a tendency to catastrophize everything. And they're also trying to pass a bill that would change the redistricting process. So in some sense, they're like hyping up these studies that say, okay, here's going to be really bad. And Democrats probably will lose seats on net in these southern states. However, you also have states like New York where Democrats can be aggressive and eliminate Republican seats. One question that constantly comes up is how aggressive are Democrats willing to be? In Oregon, for example, you could draw districts that would be kind of higher risk, higher reward and squeeze out maybe more Republican, but other interests might be upset by that. And so we'll see where the process ends up. I mean, I think five to 10 seems to be the estimates I see tossed around the most. If you see numbers that are higher than that, it's usually people forgetting to net out areas where Democrats will have gains, right? So GP might gain 15 between Texas and Florida and Georgia, but Democrats gain four or five back in other places. And so that's why having comprehensive efforts like Sean's, I'm sure Dave Wasserman will be doing great work on this. Like ours, Nate, excuse me, like ours. But we're not making projections. We're just saying like when there are proposed maps, maybe we will at some point, we're just saying when there are proposed maps like Colorado, then you can make a comparison. We're not trying to get too far ahead of the projection game. 
Yeah. And to put a bow on Nate's point, currently Democrats have only an eight seat majority in the House, which means that Republicans only need to net, what, four or five seats. So there is definitely a thought that Republicans would be able to win back the House basically through redistricting alone. The other thing to keep in mind here, too, is there will be legal challenges to maps that are drawn that happened in the 2010s that will happen here again. It is, I think, hard to kind of suss out to some extent the role that new districts have in states in terms of cementing a majority for the GOP versus Democrats. It is a midterm election. Democrats are in the White House. There are a lot of factors here. That's not to downplay the role that the maps will have. It will be a big effect moving into 2022. But we just encourage people, too, to think about it, you know, as part of the overall environment, not the only factor. Yes, yeah, sir. You mentioned the core battles that played out post-2010. I think we should expect very much the same, but it's going to be a little bit of a different environment. So back then, we still didn't know whether or not the Supreme Court would be open to ruling that partisan gerrymandering is unconstitutional. We now know the answer to that question, and the court has ruled that it is not under their domain. It's not up to the court to decide whether or not partisan gerrymandering is allowable. So these battles have now very much moved into state courts. And so we're going to see a lot of arguments that partisan gerrymandering is not allowed under specific state constitutions, regardless of what the U.S. Constitution says. We've seen those fights play out to a certain extent. And for example, Pennsylvania, already the maps were redrawn there because the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania ruled that partisan gerrymandering is not constitutional under the state constitution. So that's one area to watch. We're also, of course, going to see a lot of racial gerrymandering cases. Those are still going to be brought to the Supreme Court. There's going to be a debate over what a majority-minority district or a minority-opportunity district looks like. So Democrats and Republicans have different views on essentially the number of minorities that should be drawn into a particular district in order to make it possible for a minority community to elect the candidate that it wants. I think that's another fight that we are going to be watching play out in, honestly, the coming years, but also as these maps are drawn. You know, I'm curious what other kinds of debates people are going to be watching as these maps get drawn and we move forward. Yeah, there are so many. We kind of have touched on a few of them, but Texas in general, I think, is huge stakes. It's the biggest state that is being drawn not by a commission because California is under a commission and obviously Republicans have control there. And you see the Democrats in the Texas legislature fleeing the state to deny the legislature a quorum just on these voting restriction bills and frankly redistricting, I think, will have a much bigger negative impact on Texas Democrats than those bills would. Of course, I'm sure that they would say that they're also protesting the moral aspect of, of those laws. But it'll be interesting to see if Texas Democrats continue to not show up for redistricting. You'll have fights in places like New York and Ohio where there are these new commission setups that are designed to have fairer maps, but one party can, if they want to, shrug off that commission and say, no, we're going to gerrymander anyway. It'll be interesting to see what happens there. Things you mentioned, Galen, you know, with regards to racial gerrymandering, there are a few southern states, I think most notably Louisiana, where you could very easily draw another majority black district. And I'm sure there will be court fights about that. And there are so many others too. Yeah. You mentioned commissions. I think this coming cycle is going to be kind of a big test of how these independent commissions are received by the public and viewed by the parties. There was a big push over the past decade to embrace these commissions, oftentimes in ballot measures that won by overwhelming support from the general public. 
And now we're going to see how that process looks, which parties are happy with it. For the purposes of a redistricting tracker, I was just writing our write-up about the process in Colorado. And there's only proposed maps out so far, but Democrats were enthusiastic about implementing this independent commission. The current preliminary congressional map that the independent commission put out there favors Republicans in relation to the general partisan lean of Colorado. So I imagine, especially as we see probably a degree of partisan gerrymandering in Florida or Texas or Georgia, for example, potentially some heartache amongst Democrats in states like Colorado, where they do control all levers of government, probably could have gerrymandered if they wanted to, but instead have this independent commission. Now, good government arguments are aside from those political calculations and so on. And and of course, if you believe in good government, perhaps trumps all of that. But we're going to see, you know, how people feel about these independent commissions as the cycle plays out, which is something I'm really curious about. One thing to keep in mind is that the bluest areas are bluer than the reddest areas are redder. That, you know, New York City gave whatever, 91 percent of its vote to Joe Biden. There are very few places in the country, counties, where Trump won 91 percent. It was not that high, sir. It was not that high. And it had declined since 2016. It was like in the 80s. What is it? What is the game? Biden won 76 percent of the vote in New York City. Oh, okay. So I was misestimating. Just stereotype New Yorkers, why don't you? What about my district, Carolyn Maloney's district? Uh, that was probably higher. What is this? Is this like <laughs> a tour of Nate the Silver's 538 politics team Googles things for me? <laughs> you know, if I, I've talked about this before, haven't I? If I go down the block, I'm in a different congressional district. Yes. Right. I know because you implied that your district was the west side of Manhattan before, when in fact my district is the west side of Manhattan and it's Jerry Nadler's district. Okay, but I live on the, would you not say that I live on the west side? Um, no, I wouldn't. I would say you live in the Penn Station area of New York City. It's been rebranded. It's now Northeast Chelsea. (laughs) That is chic as hell. Okay, all jokes aside, what were you saying, Nate? But there are districts that are like 90 or 95% Biden, and there are not districts that are like 95% Trump, because even in the most rural areas, you usually have some younger people, some minorities, some college professors, some gay people. You have some communities that vote Democratic, whereas Manhattan, parts of it anyway, are you know 90% plus Democrats. So when you're doing that, that means that you drain more Democrats into these areas, which are usually urban areas, that takes away from what happens in the median district. And I wanted to circle back to the point, Galen, you were making about the independent commissions and what factor that will have in the redistricting cycle. There's been a trend here that there are fewer and fewer competitive seats in the House and that most elections are increasingly decided in the primary stage and not the general. With this proposed map within Colorado, you know, Colorado got one new seat this year through the apportionment process. And right now that one new seat would be a highly competitive seat. And so I want to distill for readers here, too, that there is no one metric for assessing a map, particularly when it comes to how fairly it was drawn. There's a number of different metrics you can look at. We're giving readers both the median seat, the efficiency gap, how competitive the districts are. And so there are these trade-offs, though, as you were getting at, where this might overall be a map that is more competitive for elections in Colorado. But if Colorado is moving in an increasingly democratic direction for the Democratic Party, you know, is that at odds with then what this map now reflects? And I think that'll be really interesting for these independent commissions, because I think part of their mandate were more competitive districts. And do we see that pan out this time around? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And 
listeners who have been with us for several years will maybe remember the gerrymandering project. I spent months of my life, but then we spent weeks of this podcast going through and describing all of the intricacies of redistricting and why many of these priorities, such as having a map that represents the partisanship of a state, can be in conflict with having a map that has lots of competitive districts. And so maybe we'll revive some of those episodes, put them in this feed uh, later on, or update some stuff as we get more information. But I think this was a good table setting for redistricting 2021, which is going to quickly turn into redistricting 2022 because of the delayed census data. But does anyone have anything else they want to share before we go? Nathaniel, if you know off the top of your head, because we have like the timeline for states, which ones do we expect to come up first of note? Well, Colorado's already started, you know, it drew its preliminary map and they will probably be moving quickly on Thursday uh, after they get the data, because I believe the first deadline for their map is October 1st. But I think that the first state we are expecting is Oklahoma to get like a kind of official proposed map based on census data. And then a few more states will follow from there. Also, keep in mind that there, in theory, could still be congressional action that would affect the redistricting process. H.R. 1 um, would make everything an independent commission. Is that right? Yeah. So I believe that the version, I mean, I think they still have yet to release their kind of the skinny version. But the original proposal was that it would mandate states to go to independent commissions in 2030. But for now, it would lay out guidelines that they have to follow. So no egregious gerrymandering uh, rules, basically. But they wouldn't mandate commissions this time around because obviously it's too late for that. There also could be action to try to strengthen the Voting Rights Act again. Joe Manchin's talked about that a little bit. And that could have effects on litigation and so forth, too. For sure. So lots of stuff to track in the coming months as this process plays out. Stick with us. We're going to talk about it on this podcast. And also, of course, go to 538.com and actually play around with that tracker and see what the states are up to when it comes to map drawing. But I think we're going to leave things there for now. So thank you, Nate, Sarah, and Nathaniel. Thanks, Galen. Yeah, thanks. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigari-Curtis is on audio editing. And Emma Riley is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. What is it called? Sorry, it's injusticiable, right? That's the word? Non-justiciable. Non-justiciable, okay. No. Um, Can you say it with a Boston accent? Justiciable. Non- <laughs> non-justiciable. I can't even say it in a normal accent. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.